The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you are in the right place every week. We're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we're sitting down with the man in charge of allocation of the world's largest asset manager, and that's BlackRock. We're going to get his take on a range of topics, everything from the Fed's next moves and the glide path of interest rates to the popularity of active fixed income and investing in a 5% world. We'll also get a look at big global bets ETF investors can sink their teeth into. If you're looking to go beyond domestic borders in the bond space, here is my conversation with Rick Reeder. He's the CIO of Global Fixed Income at BlackRock. He's also head of the BlackRock Global Allocation Team. So here's, here's the question. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Rob. Um, appreciate it. There's one topic dominating everything here, and that's the direction of interest rates. You knew I'd start with this, right, folks? <laughs> Are rates going to be higher or lower towards the end of the year so, in 2024? Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I think we're closer to the top end of the range. I mean, is it possible if growth continues to be strong and we push up a little bit? Listen, I think the one thing that's usually important is that the Treasury's got to issue a tremendous amount of debt. And, you know, every week we're getting four to $500 billion a week of debt that's coming into the marketplace. So... You know, you got to absorb a lot in the markets. If, you know, I think the Fed is pretty much done. Could they hike another 25 in December? Possibly. But I think short end to intermediate term interest rates have done virtually all they're going to do. Could long end interest rates drift a bit higher? I think so, because of the amount of debt that the Treasury has to so put in. So we could get a normal yield curve. I think we're going to get a normal yield curve. As you get into next year, growth is moderating, inflation is coming down. We think as you get into the beginning of next year, you're going to get inflation in the high twos, two and three quarters, 285 or so. You know, that's, it's still elevated. But if you take real rates, so you think about, you know, you're issuing treasury bills at 5.6%. You get inflation at 270, 280. You're talking about real yields that are pretty darn Close attractive. Close to 3%. Right. And I think what's going to happen is next year, the Fed, to keep real yields at a, at a restrictive level, they'll still have to bring the rate down because inflation is coming down. So, listen, I think in particularly front to intermediate term interest rates, I think that we've seen most of what we're going to see there. You know, today, later on today, we're going to get the Treasury refunding schedule at 3 o'clock. When was the last time this was news? And yet, <laughs> it, now it's news. It's, so I think we're, we're expecting, th- there was huge numbers. That, as Rick said, there's huge <laughs> amounts of debt being issued. I think it was $1 trillion in the third quarter. I think incredible. the estimates now, they're going to announce this today, but I think $825 billion or something yeah. uh, is the numbers. Uh, and, and we're actually paying attention to this, and we never <laughs> used to. So in, if you take gross issuance... In, uh, in November, I think we're going to see $2 trillion of gross issuance. Think about that, $500 billion a week of gross issuance. So that takes Treasury bill supply and coupon supply. The numbers are staggering. And by the way, it's not like they're going down. Because of the cost of the interest now, and people don't, don't factor in, do you know for the last 10 years, the average interest rate on bills was 0.82%. We're going to issue bills this week at 560 so think about what's happening. The debt service, the cost to Treasury grows. What happens is you have to issue more debt. And so this is a big deal for going. I mean, $2 trillion a month of gross issuance, $500 billion a week. The numbers are staggering. It's part of why I think rates will stabilize here. I think you need to see the Fed start to bring that rate down, which I don't think will happen in the second half of the year. But, uh, but you know, we're going to get to buy these yields at these levels. So the for, supply is staggering, but the demand may not be. But the Chinese apparently are not buying as much as they used to. The Japanese are not. The banks are not for whatever restrictions. Who's buying all this stuff? By the way, I, so you hit the two, two, two of the big ones. You missed one. 
the Federal Reserve, yeah. in 2020 bought two and a half trillion, 21 they bought a trillion. Fed's not buying, they're selling. The banks, like you say, not buying, they're selling. And actually, I would argue international is net selling. Who buys it all? What has to happen, and I think what will happen over the next year or so, is households will increase their holdings. So they're buying bills today, clearly, through money market funds and outright. What I think will happen in the next year or so is if Fed starts to cut rates, people say, gosh, I want to lock these yields in. Then I think people will start to go out the yield curve, and you'll start to see the households have to buy it. But that has to happen. Because, and by the way, same thing with agents. Well, rates are going to go through the roof. Well, rates can go higher. Yeah, so yeah. all those uh, equity investors sitting on the sideline collecting 5% treasury bonds right now, yields right now, that's a huge competition for the stock market. As it a is. stocks guy, I, that worries me tremendously. Mm. But you're saying that could be good news, though. Here, What would entice them to come back into equities, though? So I or is think this a permanent feature? So, no, I mean, I listen, I think, um, I think what happens, I think the equity rates still do okay as long as rates stay here and or start to come down. If you believe that the Fed is going to start to move rates down in the second half of the year, if you think the yield curve can normalize, you could create a decent tailwind for the equity market. Listen, I think equities, if you said next year, what should my portfolio look like? By the way, you can get 5.5% in treasuries if you want to take a little bit more yield curve risk, go out in three years, five years, which I think is fine today, and maybe I'll do some investment credit, credit, you can get seven. So I get seven in high quality fixed income, I think equities can get you an 8 to 10. You think about what return on equity for, the, for equities is 8 to 12 yeah, percent. That's historically, that but a lot of people are saying it's not going to be the same going forward because of the comp- competition. That's, that's part of the problem. So, right. So are we going to see 25 percent returns in equities? I don't think so. But I think equities will do their job. I think the multiple will stay relatively unchanged. You know, can you throw off 10 percent growth of book value of equities? No, listen, I, I think people... I think people will continue to buy equities. I'm pretty blown away. You think about U.S. economy this quarter grew 4.9%. That is staggering. That is the direct relationship to revenues for companies. As long as we can keep growing nominal GDP in this country, equities will do their job. And where are you in the soft landing camp? We've been waiting for this recession for a year. A year ago, everyone was sure we would be in a recession this time. Wrong. Completely wrong. I don't really get the concept anymore of landings. Like I, I, I think the world likes to talk about soft landing or... The U.S. economy is 70%. Consumption is 70% services. In 100 years, there's only been 14, 14 negative quarters of, of negative growth in services. Services don't, go, don't have cycles. Goods economy has cycles. When people say, gosh, we're going to go in a recession or a deep recession, you'd really need the goods economy under tremendous pressure. The goods economy can be cyclical, commodity-driven, commodity-oriented. But, I, gosh, I just don't, you know, do I think, so this year we think, GDP, real GDP, we think we'll finish at two and a half percent real. Next year, we think it's going to be a percent and a half positive. So moderating, slower, but I, you know, I think people underestimate. I call the U.S. economy the polyurethane economy because it flexes, it adjusts like a Tempur-Pedic bed, and it can take some pretty significant shots and it just and it rebounds. So I think we're slowing. I love that polyurethane. So not Teflon economy. No, you're, you're sort of playing on words yeah. here, but. Polyurethane. Yeah. So Meaning I said that before. It bends and, and, it, and, it's and, incredible. And flexes. Yeah. So I, there was a commercial once. I remember the Tempur-Pedic bed. They showed somebody jumping on one side of the bed, and, the, and they didn't spill the wine glass on the other. All right. And that, to me, mm-hmm. is like the U.S. economy. You can take commercial real estate, local banks. Uh, you can take a, a gross, an incredible increase in interest rates. U.S. economy, technology-oriented, energy-independent, um, real productivity and innovation taking place and a service-oriented economy, particularly as the, economy, as the population ages. You think about spend on health care, spend on education, et cetera. It's much more stable than, you know, people talk about these cycles. 
And I think cycles were something we saw 20 years ago, 30. Unless you have a pandemic or financial crisis, I think it's much more stable than people think. Now, active bond ETFs. You've got this active bond ETFs. One of the reasons I wanted to have him here other than get his macro is he's running an active bond ETF right now, and they're having a bit of a moment, these yeah. things. You, you launched this BlackRock Flexible Income ETF, B-I-N-C is the mm-hmm. symbol. You started in May. Uh, it's got $160 million in assets, so that, and that's pretty respectable. Uh, you're the manager mm-hmm. of this thing. Uh, so I, I look at this. Two things stick out to me about this. It's a very unusual ETF, folks. Uh, strong emphasis on international. Mm-hmm. I see Brazilian bonds in here. I mm-hmm. see Mexican bonds in here. Uh, generally emphasis on the shorter term. I think your exactly three-year right. duration. Yes, is that right? 2.3 years. Yep. Okay. Tell me about international. This really yeah, leaked yeah. out at me. What, you, I see almost what almost 40% international. What, yeah, what's so, the, what, what, why international bonds? Yeah. So, I mean, by the way, there's international and international. So when you think about emerging markets, you could be hanging out on the edge in Argentina and, said, and Turkey and other... And, uh, historically, Russia, et cetera. We do, a, we, we like Mexico. Think about where short-term interest rates, local rates are in Mexico. You can clip double-digit yield to buy short-term Mexico. As long as you're comfortable with them, we hedge some of the currency. You know, Brazil's a high-quality emerging market issuer. But our, the size we have in emerging markets, relative to where we have international, is much bigger in Europe. So things like European investment grade credit, European high yield, a, a dollar investor today, because of the currency, can actually swap back. So as a dollar investor, what we do is we swap back European, things like European investment grade credit to dollars. You get six and a half percent for two year good quality investment grade companies. So this is largely, a, it's a dollar play to a, to a certain extent. It yes, seems like by the way, we could be here a year from now and we'll be 15% international. Today, it is such a boon to U.S. investors to take advantage of this. Because of the dollar. Yeah, by the way, it's the flip side of a European or Japanese investor. You can't buy U.S. assets because the cost to hedge your currency is so expensive. But as a dollar investor, it is a windfall. The beauty of this active ETF is we can move around and take advantage of where the opportunity is. I I think, you know, active ETFs in fixed income, people underestimate, there's 68,000 securities in fixed income. I know we were talking earlier about the size of the equity market, the number of issuers. There's 68,000 fixed income. I think the stat is 85% of active managers outperform fixed income. One, you get carry and income. Two, you have such diversity of opportunity. You know, what we'll do in this that I think is hard for an individual to replicate, we'll do things like securitized assets, things like asset backs. CLO, and but we keep it real high quality. Our average rating, I think, is low single A now. Yeah, and we're getting well. That's what's unusual about this. First off, five and three quarter yield on this right now. That's above two year uh, treasuries, right? Um, and uh, what's the expense ratio? Forty basis points, I think. Yeah, right? we're actually we're significantly higher yield than that. The uh, but we're actually over seven in terms of the way we uh, we're at seven point four percent today. So it's a pretty good uh, it's a pretty good yield in the portfolio today. So yeah. I see here, non-U.S. credit, 22%. Those are like international bonds. Correct. Uh, Mexico, Brazil. U.S. high yield, 17%. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty high. Um, that's a, that's going to be a little help there. Yeah, there's one thing when you categorize certain, like we buy a lot of high-quality issuers, and we do an awful lot of, uh, of analysis in terms of the types of issuers we buy. And like I said, like international things like European investment grade is pretty safe. The nice thing about this, we're getting 90% of the yield of high-yield index and we're half the volatility. Like if you go back since we launched this in May, our volatility is really low. We've outperformed the aggregate index by 500 basis points since we launched. Is that only because you buy the highest quality junk? We buy a lot of high quality, uh, high yield, we buy a lot of high quality asset backs. 
We buy a lot of agency mortgages. And because of, the, like we talked about earlier, the shape of the yield curve, you can buy a lot of yield in the front end of the yield curve today. Mm -hmm. Keep your yield really high. Keep your volatility down. Yeah. Now, we don't own, I'm going to say if we don't own anything, but I'm pretty certain we don't own anything longer than a five-year maturity. Right. So our interest rate volatility, say the ag, since we launched, the ag's down over 4.5%, and we're up since we launched. And uh, the idea is keep your interest rate volatility down, keep your yeah. volatility of credit down, and okay. just try and do it over and over again. And I, I see uh, asset-backed securities here, yeah. 8%. Yeah. I mean, that could be what? Credit card portfolios? It's so, anything backed by assets, correct. right? Credit cards, credit cards car loans, whatever. Student loans, auto loans, I say credit, credit cards, uh, residential uh, mortgages. Um, you know, we like parts of the AAA commercial mortgage market. People have said, yeah. you know, office property is right. having a problem. It is. But we like parts of the, uh, the commercial mortgage market. And you have market. commercial mortgages in here, too, 7%. Correct. So how do you put this together? I've asked them several questions about its construction here. Do you use top-down, bottoms-up? I mean, how does the model, do you look at the, glo the global economy question. and say this, and then you say you have all these tens of thousands of bonds? That's is a there a bottoms-up way to do that, so, too? So, you know, we run $2.6 in fixed income, so we're pretty active in the, uh, in the market. The way we do it is we set regime identification. So I spend tons of time on the macro and saying, okay, where are we today in the interest rate? Where do I want to be in the short end of the curve, long end of the curve? Do I want to be international? Do I want to be domestic? And then we let our teams do the bottom up. So I'll say to our securitization team, I'm looking to get this yield. I'm looking to get this sort of dispersion, this sort of volatility. I'm willing to take this sort of volatility. Go get me the best assets for it. And then we let our teams do bottoms up. And you know the intensity of what we do, we have unbelievable risk systems. We run stress testing, scenario analysis. I think we run 350,000 simulations a night to try and look at the stability and make sure, you know, not to get too technical, things like correlations, dispersion, beta is in the right place. And, and uh, it takes some pretty serious analytics to get it to the right place. But we start with identify the regime we're operating in, where's the best opportunity, then let our teams go find the individual assets. Yeah, so so now let's just talk about whether how well they're doing on this right, thing. Right. Okay, so what are you launched in, in May? So the benchmark is the AGG. The, yeah. And for those who don't know, the AGG is um, it, it's sort of a basket of the most diversified fixed stocks income. and bonds, fixed, 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 a fixed income that you can have. So you, you've got high yield, you've got corporates, and here you've got mm. treasuries, right? So this is sort of the benchmark. So there's the AGG on the white line there. You move that again, put, put that back. We have the AGG on the white line and uh, uh, the uh, BINC there. Uh, and you've been outperforming, yeah. which is actually so not for, it's hard to outperform on fixed income. They're, they can be. I don't know. I mean, well, like actually, you, you have a very it. unusual mix yeah, here. Of stuff, because but. we can uh, build income. There you go. That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. Last few months, that orange line is the um, is the BINC, which is uh, Rick's fund. By the way, that number, I mean, that's 500 basis points. So they can, uh, and the volatility. Yeah. And, and that's the only way, price. Look at the line. You're just doing price here too, right? Uh, yes, sir. And and we yield more than the uh, than I think that's the ag. Yeah. But look at the ag. look at how stable the orange line is yeah. versus the white line. Yeah. And less so what volatility. we're trying to do is create you know really low volatility, very low dispersion, and keep our yield up. So you're clipping an awful lot of income. And, uh, and then use our tools to manage the diversification of it. Yeah. Um, uh, BlackRock also runs iShares. I mean, this is the largest ETF provider in the world right now. Mm -hmm. um, but that's mostly pa passive investments, yeah. right? Yeah. The iShares part. Uh, this is actively managed here. Yeah. Um, so where would this fit in a world that's largely moving towards indexing? I mean, can you make some argument that 
active management bonds actually has a better proposition for outperforming than actively managed stocks, for example? Is there something so about bond investing that makes it more amenable to active investing, or is that not true at all? So there's two things in fixed income that make it very, very unique. One is the, the secret about fixed income is if you can build more yield in your portfolio than the index and kick out the stuff you don't want to own. So, the, I mean, you can create 50 to 75 base points a year, things that trade too rich, things like agents, like uh, some of the agency paper, some of the supranational paper, trades too rich, kick it out. Get more yield than the index and then manage your volatility aggressively. And then the second thing is a point I made earlier. There's 68,000 fixed income securities. Your ability to pick the, uh, the ones across that make sense versus the So you're the saying the don't. plethora of QCIPs, what they yeah. are, they're the individual names is how they number them, QCIPs. Yeah. Yeah. It, it enhances the possibility for you to win in active management. Correct. I mean, think about, we'll look at a piece of, of commercial mortgage security and we'll look at all the collateral and we'll say, okay, is there, is there residential in here? Is there, how much of the office is in there? Is there warehouse in there? And then we analyze it, dissect it. It takes a lot of rigor. It takes a lot of analytics. But you do it over and over again, you know, similar to the way, you know, casino operates. If you can yeah. tilt the odds in your favor, just do it over yeah. and over and over well, again. Well, the increase in, in choices strikes me as one way you could outperform. It also was, has the potential for underperforming because you get overwhelmed by the sheer choice. It does. So, it, so I run an opportunistic mutual fund. It's called Strategic Income Opportunities. We've run one year, three year, five years. We've run double the return of the uh, of the aggregate index at half the volatility. Yeah. And it's because you have so many tools at your disposal around the world, like you were pointing to. You know, there are times you want to be in Mexico. There are times you want to be out of it. There are times, you know, being tactical in fixed income and having expertise and real teams around the world to do it can be hugely Not effective. Easy. How do you compete with the onslaught of, of these active products I've seen? I've mm -hmm. covered so many of these uh, uh, option overlay uh, products that are out there, all sorts of things that I have seen, option income strategies, um, covered call ETFs, enhanced option ETFs, premium income ETFs. You know what the competition is like, and they've attracted some interest. Yeah. How do you compete at that? Against so that? listen, I mean, I, you know, I've been doing this for a little, long, really long time. We run a lot of fixed income. My view is just try and create durable return, consistent return over time. The reason why I think this, I think this BlackRock income will grow will, will grow significantly. The desire to own ETFs and models, but to also understand how what will how will that ETF do. So if I put in what most financial advisors say, gosh, I want to build a model, I want to understand what that is. The transparency around this today is, I gosh, I know I'm getting income, I know I'm not getting a lot of volatility. That will fit an awful lot of models. That's why you've seen it grow as much as it has. It grows so much in the last few months. And our sense is, as more and more platforms put it on, which we've seen recently, that it'll get some real growth. I say, because it fits. Like, how do you get... People buy yield because they like, they like high yield. They like, and there are not that many tools to do it. Being able to find a tool that somebody can manage that higher income with some stability, I think will gain a lot of attention. A lot of people are saying this uh, increase in rates. I want to go back to the macro okay. um, as we get out of here. The increase in rates has done the Fed's work for it. Yeah. Is that your position too? I think it's a big part of it. I mean, I think you know, part of it's the long end of the interest or the yield curve that's moved up. That tightens financial conditions. That's where most of modern finance issues, you know, corporate corporates issue out the longer end of the curve. Mortgages are issued out five to, to longer on the curve. So the fact that we've moved this much, the, and we've moved the forwards, not to get too technical, 
But if you look at the forward rate mm. curves, they've moved back 160, 170 basements. That is a huge move because people were expecting the Fed to hike and then start easing yeah. quickly. I and think a lot of people were, were baffled why the long end did move. But this has historically been a problem. The yeah. Fed raises short-term rates, and then the long-term doesn't go up enough, and everybody says, right. why, aren't they, why isn't everybody listening yeah. to us? Well, it but now helps, it is. And it also helps that Treasury's now issuing it a lot. And yeah. so you're getting a lot of supply. And to your point earlier, parts of the, where the traditional buyers aren't there anymore. So we're getting some curvature. I think you'll get more normalization of the yield curve. Part of why I like owning yeah. the short end to the belly is I think the yield curve will, will steepen. I know, I know you're the fixed income guy, but I'm the stocks guy. Mm-hmm. It, what's your outlook or BlackRock's outlook for equities? The S&P's gone nowhere for two years, yeah. essentially sideways here. Europe still mm-hmm. underperforms global equities. So I run a lot of equities. My global allocation fund is big, you know, is oriented towards equities. So Listen, I think equities will do their job next year. I think, you know, I prefer U.S. to Europe. I think Europe's slowing faster. I think the multiples in U.S. are actually, if you take out the seven, Magnificent Seven, although actually I think those stocks are okay because of their revenue growth, but if you take them out, your multiple, you can find a lot of stocks trading at three, four, five times cash flow. <clears throat> I've learned in my life, if you can buy companies stable businesses at three, four, five times cash flow, that's pretty darn attractive. You know, there are places like Japan that are Are there are companies like that? That are doing that, you can do that now. Hundred percent. So you look at um, parts of healthcare, autos, defense, yeah. home builders, energy. Yeah. There's a bunch of. In the last couple of months, <laughs> they've gone into that territory. It's taken. It's taken that t- that totally much time. Agree. Totally agree. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs with the Markets 102 portion of our podcast. We'll be continuing the conversation with BlackRock's Rick Reeder. Rick, thanks for sticking around. I want to talk to you about international investing because your new ETF, uh, which you launched in May, uh, has a significant amount, uh, and this is a bond ETF, of uh, international bonds in it. Mexico, Brazil, government bonds uh, in it. The case for international investing, um, how do you balance out the need to do international and diversify versus the fact that for a long, long time, the United States, at least in equities, has outperformed the rest of the world? How do you, is there a way to balance that out? You can, you, you, the problem with most people is they think, oh, the U.S. has outperformed, at least in equities, for years and years. Therefore, it must in the future, which we know is, is a mental fallacy. So I said a couple of things. First of all, the beauty of fixed income is when rates come down faster. Like we think Europe, growth is slowing faster. Rates will come down faster. Inflation is falling in parts of the emerging markets, Mexico, Brazil. We talked about. So your opportunity for return in a lower rate environment is probably faster in those locales than it is in the U.S. The other beauty of it is there are some incredible opportunities as a dollar investor when you swap foreign assets, things like European investor grade back to dollars, you get an extra 200 basis points because of the, the currency hedge. So you can buy things like European investor grade, two-year European investor grade companies, 6.5%, maybe even a bit higher, European high yield at 10. Gosh, it's pretty attractive. And the economy's slowing, but it's not slowing that much. And we could get a tailwind from interest rates. We could get a tailwind from just the yield that we get into those assets. So the beauty of active fixed income is you can move it around the world and find where the best opportunity is today. I mean, still, we own an awful lot of U.S. You've got to be a bit careful about U.S. interest rates. We're offering so much debt. The Fed, from the Treasury, the Fed may still raise rates a bit more. We want to make sure we're managing our interest rate exposure, hold it in the places that are most optimal, and just run balance 
stability in the portfolio. How do you look at global investing when you have political issues like China? So 10 years ago, we were all saying, okay, a true global investor will invest based on, say, market capitalization. So if the U.S. is $40 trillion market cap and China has a $10 trillion market cap and Japan has a $6 trillion or whatever, you would own, uh, you would want to own in relation to market capitalization. And yet the political conflict with China, a lot of people are saying, well, maybe this is a different case. Maybe China is a different case. Maybe China is not investable in the way we would think of it in a traditional way. Does BlackRock have any opinion on how we should do that or what's the right way? Because the investment community is really kind of baffled now about what to do. There's the value guys. Remember, the value guys never used to care about any of the political Mm. stuff. As long as it got cheap, they bought Mm. anything in the world. Mm. Then there's the global investors that say you ought to invest with the global economy, you know, Mm. when proportioned to market capitalization. But now there's a whole new issue about whether China is actually investable. So, you know, I think we always look at what the alternative opportunity is today. Listen, the geopolitical dynamic is challenging and, and you think about it, and it's just hard to predict. From an investor point of view, I always think about, you know, you comment about why do we own international? You know, I feel pretty good owning Europe, I feel pretty good owning Mexico. How much more do I want to stray from that today? If I get ample yield in those places, by the way, same thing in the equity market. If I think I can garner enough return in the US and or places like Japan's interesting these days, like how much risk do I need to take in those regions? Yeah. So the political you know, risk predict- is so high now. That's my point. It's so, really a problem. Totally. I've learned over and my not, career. And not just on the moral, not moral issue, but you know, intellectual issue of do we want to invest in in, in a country where that is that is antithetical to our interests? Totally. And I, you know, one thing I will say is you can think about it as a professional investor. You can think about, gosh, I'll own it, and then I'll hedge the risk. Pretty darn hard. It's unpredictable. You pay a lot. Nobody wants to provide insurance when the risk is high. And so what do I do? I just run my beta or I run my, you know, where my exposures are to a place I feel very comfortable organically yeah. of what's in the portfolio. Because quite frankly, you know, I want to make sure that, um, you know, something that shocks the portfolio, that uh, markets, by the way, are, are not deep today. Yeah. People are, you know, whether it's the Fed, whether it's growth, whether it's international, people want to take less risk. So we just want to manage that and, and, and make sure you don't air pocket yeah. in portfolios. So your, your point is... Uh, well, you're a new bond fund, BINC, yeah. uh, BlackRock Flexible Income. You own, I'm just fascinated, you own Mexican bonds there. Yeah. And you're, you're getting what? What are we getting Mexican bonds? So you get low double-digit yields from yeah. Mexico. Oh, the same place where inflation's coming down. You think about how attractive that can be and without going out the yield curve. Right, and the dollar's strong. So sure. it's a, Well, and so Mex peso has also been, been quite strong. It's... Yeah. Um, you know, so you know what we do is we manage our currency risk to make sure we're not taking too much currency. So your exposure. point is, why should we go out into other risky assets when we can get a decent yield here in our own backyard, practically? Right. So you talk about what we have in high yield in our portfolio. So if you look optimally, say, gosh, we own high yield, but yeah. do I need to own triple C rated high yield today? Do I need to own some of the weaker things? No yeah. way. I get I get plenty of yield otherwise. The one thing in the markets today that other people talk about, you know, we're clipping over seven percent yield today. If you wanted to get eight and a half to nine, the additional risk you'd have to take is so profound. Like, why do it? People would be very comfortable. You know, we used to buy bills and treasuries under 1%. Like, these yield levels are super The, the average today. investor seems to understand that. We have yeah. $6 trillion in money market funds. Yes, correct. So, I mean, the, it, it's really a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, tell me about stocks next year. We're, we're down 20%. Last year, we're still up, what, 7, 8% in the S&P this year. 
the glue that holds the bear case together is high rates. Mm-hmm. It, it, are we, let's assume rates don't change from here. Mm-hmm. Let's assume we're still 5% on the two years or thereabouts uh, in the next six months. Is, is this a permanent headwind for the stock market? So there's something very interesting about, you know, why, why are higher interest rates a drag on equities? One, like you said before, there is an alternative, and the alternative is super attractive. Bills at 5.5% are super attractive. There's one that's different, though, than historically. Companies used, the reason why it drags so heavy on companies or on equities is companies used to borrow significantly at those rates and it would drag on their margins. Companies have turned their debt out. I think it was something like 75 or 80% of high yield finance when the funds rate was under 1%. That's pretty unbelievable. So if companies are turned their debt out, don't have to refinance, that drag on margins from debt costs is muted relative to what was historically. The big one is, gosh, is an alternative. But today, like you say, you talk about seven trillion city money market funds, it's not all gonna go back into, uh, into bonds. A ton is gonna go back into equities. They just wanna know the Fed's not gonna keep hiking rates and that we're in a fairly stable period. But I so feel pretty stocks, good. Stocks are pretty washed out. We were talking mm-hmm. off camera a little while ago about how the earnings have come in okay, but the body language of the corporations are such that these the, the stocks, that they, they sell off immediately after. You know, healthcare has been awful. Johnson & Johnson was at a new low on Friday. American Express was at a new low, and they came out and said the consumer was fine. The stock's at a new low. Yeah. Gee, this seems like somebody doesn't believe them. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. If you strip out those seven stocks and look at the performance of a lot of the equity market this year, it hasn't been that great, you know, particularly after a tough year last year. Part of the beauty of why equities make some sense today is you're buying companies at three, four, five times cash flow. Yeah. That's pretty darn attractive, even if rates stay elevated. It is quite amazing. All right, Rick, thank you very much for joining us as always. Rick Reeder uh, with BlackRock, and thank you for listening to the ETF podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.